We're at this closing week, really, if you, if you believe it, uh, uh, week 12 of this series we're called, we've called 12 Words. And it has been a, a long journey, it, it, 12 weeks worth of a journey to be exact. And we have one more word to get to today. And then next week, uh, you may have heard, we're, we're celebrating baptisms with, with folks. Um, it's going to be a really, really powerful Sunday. If you love hearing stories of life transformation and what God is up to in your fellow folks at E3, make it a point to be here because there's going to be some great stories. Um, so we started this journey with the premise of, of really what is spirituality for? What is faith and spirituality for? And so many of us have had experiences where we've been told that you know, faith and spirituality are, are to make you feel appropriately bad about yourself or appropriately bad about your friends or family. And, and, uh, and, and we've seen how faith and spirituality has been used to instill fear in people or maybe as a way, as a way to identify like, who the good people are, who the bad people are in the world. But we started with this simple premise with 12 words that when Jesus said, why did he come to earth? He said in John 10, 10, look, I've come to give you a rich, abundant, full, satisfying life. And so this whole idea, this whole journey started with the idea of like, look, your faith, your spirituality, my faith, my spirituality should lead to a rich and satisfying life. It should not lead to fear. It should not lead to anger. It should not lead to, to hatred. It should lead to a rich, full, satisfying life at the deepest levels of our being. You know, and, and, and I've heard this said, and, and I really believe this. If, if you're living a faith that is not leading to, you those, to those places in your life, I would challenge you to rethink your faith because this is what Jesus said he came here to do. And so uh, these 12 words represent key concepts, key activities, key movements that lead to a rich and satisfying life, as best as I can tell and as best as a lot of, of people who have adopted this can tell, not just in this community, but over time, over history, folks who have been trying to find God and, and let Jesus transform their life, this is some of the stuff they've done. So we've started off for the previous 11 weeks, we've looked at things that like, look, you've gotta uh, come to terms with your powerlessness. You are not God, I am not God. And that's a good thing, we're not designed to be God. So at our base level, like we're powerless to, to control our world. And then after that, the idea of trusting or putting your hope in God. If I'm not God, I can hope that God is God and he can help me. And then walking forward in trust. And, and we talked about how trust is sometimes really scary because trust means clouds and trust means the unknown. But that's where God leads us to, into faith. And then we looked at uh, the idea of being self-honest, you know, like really coming to terms with the things inside us that aren't always the greatest things, really naming where we are maybe not so great at life and being willing to be rigorously honest with ourselves. And then from there, uh, the idea of telling those things, speaking those things to another person. And the idea with that is not to elicit shame in ourselves, but it's, uh, it's to level our pride. It's to really go to somebody that we trust and go, let me tell you the truth about me. Because if I tell you the truth about me, that way I'm not gonna be able to put on any airs or wear any masks anymore. From there, we move to the idea of releasing those things. Some of those things are actually crutches in our lives. 
the behaviors that we've adapted over time. Actually, we started, uh, we started behaving that way because they filled a purpose in their life, but eventually they stopped and we need to release them and grow into a more full version of ourselves. From there, we looked at the idea of depending on God, depending on God to, to basically be there with us throughout our day. From there, we looked at uh, this moving out to other people, asking forgiveness from people that we've hurt. Because if you're a human being, you've got faults. And if you've got faults, you've probably hurt somebody else, and that's okay. But you should ask forgiveness for those people. And then reconciliation, seeking unity over those things. And then the last couple of weeks, we, we turned into how do you make this work in the everyday moments of your life? So examining yourself both in the moment as you interact with people and at the end of every day, reflecting on your day. God, show me where I could have done better. Help me to do better tomorrow. And then last week, we looked at prayer. What is prayer? And moving beyond the idea of prayer uh, as, as God, I'm gonna ask you for things to prayer, a type of prayer that actually changes what you ask for, changes what you desire. And a lot of times that involves with getting quiet and, and being silent and letting God speak to you rather than you just speaking to God. So the 12th word, the 12th week, the 12th word is the word messenger. It's the word messenger. So we're gonna look at the idea of taking the, the idea of there's a rich and satisfying life for every human being out there that God is inviting to somebody, and you know he's, who he's entrusted with that message? Us. You, me, the people in this room, the church. We're supposed to be the messengers. But uh, like if, you're, if you're anything like me, uh, when we start talking about being a messenger, which means we start talking about this word evangelism, which is a churchy word, like how many people have like kind of a uh, reaction when you hear the word evangelism? Like what, what are images or thoughts that come, up, that come up for you when I say evangelism? Just shout them out. Street corner preaching, what else? Televangelists, what else? Who? Tents, tent revivals, woo, that is old school. Tent revivals. Heck yeah, man. So there's all kinds of, I have the same types of, of thoughts. Uh, you know, I had, I've been around, I've seen fire and brimstone preachers, folks like, that, like uh, I think I've told the story. Uh, I went to TCU, graduated undergrad from TCU, and, and we, our, our university, our campus was, uh, had a, a road that ran through the halves of it. There was a, a median in the road. And since we were a private university, you know, you couldn't be on campus without permission, but you could be in the median. And so we had this, this guy who was a fire and brimstone preacher. He would stand in that median, and everybody had to cross, you know, the median to go to class or to come back. And he just stood there and yelled at us all day. Fornicators, drunkards, spawn of Satan. You know, we heard the whole thing, right? And that's what, you know, so I grew up with that as well. Um, the other thing that made me think about th this week was uh, a, uh, actually a job that I had when I was also in college. It, it was probably the worst fitting job that I could have ever had. And that is, uh, well, let me put it this way. If you bought a Sears appliance uh, around 1988 in Fort Worth, Texas, there's a chance that I called your house one evening and said, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith or whatever, my name is Eric Case, I work for Sears. Would you like to buy a service agreement on your brand new refrigerator? Yes, I was a telemarketer. 
it was an awful job for my personality. Uh, not, you know, I'm, I'm introverted. I don't like calling or talking to people I don't know real well. It's an effort. It takes a lot of effort for me to do that. And that was bad enough. Um, but just as an aside, we also got uh, every, you know, we got the leads. We got the little sheets of paper that say, hey, here's, here's who's bought refrigerators. Call these people. Then you also got a little stack that said, these are the no's. And we're like, what's that? And like, these are the people who have always said no once. And you got to call them again. And that like made my anxiety level just go through the wall, go through the roof. And, and truth be told, a lot of times I just kind of pushed, put them back in my desk drawer and shoved them away. And it gets at this idea of like, for a lot of us, we've grown up with the idea that um, evangelism is sort of like selling Jesus to people. And so you've got these folks, and, and I was thinking about this, this amazing movie uh, from the 80s or 90s called Glen Gary, Glen Ross. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it. It's a, it's a, a play adaptation written by uh, David Mamet. It is an amazing movie, an amazing dialogue. Look, I'm going to tell you right now, if you go see it, there's like an F-bomb every five seconds. Don't email me about it. Like, hey, you, you recommended a movie that's got an F-bomb in it. Um, it really has so many dynamic levels, but Alec Baldwin plays this sales manager who comes in to these guys, and uh, he's speaking to them about selling. He has this famous line, always be closing. And uh, he, he, they have this sales promotion goes on. He looks at these sales guys, and he says, here's, what's, here's what the prizes are. He's like, first prize in this promotion is a Cadillac. Second prize is a set of steak knives. Third prize is you're fired. And it's like, oh my gosh. And it's this intensity that, that lies there. And uh, that's what I think of sometimes when I think of how I've seen evangelism handled in the church. Sales tactics, sales pressure. Let me convince you what's, what's the felt need that, that I can feel, that Jesus can feel. And he does feel needs. But I guess I'm, I'm operating from the premise of like, maybe some of us have seen that. Maybe if I say, look, we're all called to be messengers, you're like, I, I don't, that causes all kinds of stress in my life. And I don't know if I can be a salesman for Jesus. I don't know if I can go out and, and offer the steak knife version of the spiritual life. And I'm gonna offer you today another way to think about that. Because I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind when he says, go out and spread this message, right? Like Jesus says, actually, in Luke 5, he says, uh, he's talking to some folks and he said, look, there's another way that you can think of my message. He said, uh, healthy people don't need a doctor. The sick people do. And then he says this, I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who, think, who know they're sinners and they need to repent. Now, don't get hung up on the sinner word and the repent word. I think focus for today on the fact that Jesus says, look, there's, there's sick people out there. I'm a doctor. I'm not a salesman. There's no steak knife at the end of this thing. There's no Cadillac waiting for you. There's just a doctor out there and there's sick people who need him. So as messengers, how do we connect the sick folks to the doctor? That's kind of what we're gonna get at today. What does it mean to be a messenger and how can we do it? And to do that, I wanna look at this cool little story in the Gospel of John. And Gospels are just story, story books about Jesus. There's four of them in our Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're gonna look at something in John 4. Uh, there's some Bibles out here if you want. If you want uh, I think they're only over here. If you wanna look, uh, turn over to there. 
And here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to start off and read the, the first three verses of the chapter. The story starts like this. Um, Jesus had to go through Samaria on the way. And eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well at about noontime. And soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. So that's how the story and this little interaction begins. And there's so much in this. But I wanted to just try to do something to have us maybe experience the story just slightly different. So um, to do this, we need a few things. Um, we need a well, but I don't have a well. So uh, Darren's going to come up uh, and, and, and set something up. And we need a, we need a female. And um, it's, it's a tough thing to need a, a female to volunteer when, when the women are on a retreat. But uh, Sophie has volunteered to kind of help us out. So everyone welcome, Sophie. Boy, that's, everyone welcome. Please, so, yeah. That's kind of like a lukewarm welcome. Like, if you guys were at my house, I'd be like, anyway. Awesome, see? Now you're, now you're a rock star. So, so what we're going to do is, I'm gonna, we're just going to read this. Read this interaction. Read this conversation between this woman and Jesus. And then we're going to go back and just kind of talk about it. So, um, so Jesus, I'm, gonna, I'm playing Jesus. That doesn't say anything about my character. Just, you know. So Jesus is sitting by this well where there's water, and uh, this, this woman shows up. She's a Samaritan woman. And uh, Jesus says to her, he says, hey, um, give me some water to drink. Why do you, a Jewish man, ask for something to drink for me, a Samaritan woman? Now, there's a lot there in that, that response, but we're going to, for now, we're just going to kind of roll on with it. Um, the, the text actually says that Jews and, Jer Jews and Samaritans, they don't associate with each other. But Jesus says this. He says, look, uh, if you recognized God's gift and who is saying to you, give me some water to drink, uh, you would be asking him and he would give you living water. Sir, you don't have a bucket and the well is deep. Where would you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave this well to us and he drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus says, look, everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again, but who drinks from the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in those who drink it a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life. So take that. <laughs> Jesus didn't say that last part. That was me. Sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty and will never need to come here to draw water. Mm, go get your husband and come back here. I don't have a husband. Oh. Jesus says, you're right to say that. I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you've had five husbands, and the man you're with now isn't your husband, so you've spoken the truth. Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you and your people say that it is necessary to worship in Jerusalem. Jesus says, believe me, woman, the time is coming when you or your people will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You and your people worship what you don't know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But the time is coming and is here when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. The Father looks for those who worship him this way. God is spirit, 
and it's necessary to worship God in spirit and truth. I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will teach everything to us. And Jesus says, I am the one who speaks with you. So that's the interaction. Everybody thanks Sophie for helping us out. Okay. So I just got like really into this, um, this interaction that Jesus has with this woman. And what we're going to do is look at three things that are kind of flowing through this scene that speak to some ways that we can rethink what being a messenger for God to others looks like. So I'm going to walk through the text, but we're not going to necessarily do that in order. There's going to be some skipping around that I'm going to do. So again, uh, just to set the scene, verse 4 through 7, Jesus has to go through Samaria on the way. Um, eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. These are figures from the Old Testament, the, first, the Jewish scriptures. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime, and then the Samaritan woman um, comes to the, draw water, and Jesus says, please give me a drink. So that's where we begin. So first of all, let me show you a picture of Jacob's well. This is pretty cool. That's Jacob's well. It's still there today. Still there. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. It was there in Jesus' time. It was there before Jesus, and it's there now. It has been just this one well for thousands of thousands of years. And Jesus comes and sits beside it. This woman shows up, uh, and we're told that he's in Samaria, and it's a Samaritan woman. This is critical to the story because if you know anything about uh, Jesus' context, his culture in the first century, Samaria is not a pleasant place to be for a Jew. He is in outsider territory. He's in territory that is uh, a little bit alien, a little bit hostile, and he's hostile to, to them if he's a true Jew because the Samaritans were, were looked down upon by the Jews as sort of half-breeds. They had intermarried with other people. They were Jewish originally. They had intermarried. They'd compromised on their beliefs. They worshiped God in a similar way to the Jews, but not exactly. And we'll unpack a little bit more of that. So he is at a place where the people that he's not really, as a Jew, like not really attracted to. That's where he's at. And the Samaritan woman comes. And in this culture, like, look, it's a different culture. It's a long time ago. Um, a woman and, and a Jewish man, and particularly a Samaritan woman, they're not going to have a conversation. They're not. And she, uh, like, he's going to, in ideal circumstances, if Jesus was being a good Jew, he would sort of avoid her or maybe talk down to her. But instead, Jesus does this unthinkable thing, and he just engages her in a conversation that leads to some really, really poignant places. But before we get to that, I want to show you the links that, that Jesus and the writers of the Bible, John, is going to show you about something that's going on here. Uh, there's some ways to read the Bible if you, if you know the stories that, that kind of start drawing things out. So uh, if you ever read the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and even if you just read Genesis and Exodus, you would see that when a man sits down at a well, things happen. So there's three times in the first two books of the Bible where a man 
Jacob, one of them, Isaac, another one, and then eventually a guy named Moses, where they sit down at a well. And when they sit down at a well, in, the, in these stories, a woman shows up. And somebody draws water out of the well. And when they draw the water out of the well, it's kind of like a, I don't know, kind of like a first date plus some. It's like the well's the version of match.com in the ancient world. And so uh, what ends up happening is that the man and the woman in these three stories get married. And there's a celebration and a betrothal. A man sits down at a well, a woman shows up, water is drawn, which results in a, a union and a family, something new. In John 3, uh, there's another guy in the, in, the, in the gospel named John the Baptist, and somebody's talking to him about Jesus. And listen to what John says about Jesus in the chapter prior to this one. John 3, uh, verse 28. He's talking to people. He says, you yourselves know how plainly I told you I'm not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride. And the best man is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. If you don't know, Jesus is uh, being referred to as the bridegroom here. John the Baptist, his, his close friend, his, his, uh, the guy who sort of trained him in ministry, calls Jesus in chapter 3, just before this. He says, hey, you're the bridegroom. And then he sits down at a well, and a woman shows up. And if you were reading this with a filter of these, these seminal, important Old Testament stories, and you were Jewish, you would know what's coming. Oh, there's a guy sitting at a well. And if you read the Gospel of John, you would go, well, uh, somebody just called him the bridegroom. So what are you ready for? You're ready for the bride. Now, hear me. This is not about Jesus marrying the woman at the well. It is just about who and what kind of person and what kind of people the bride can be. Who gets accepted into Jesus' family? Who is he willing to say, come and I'll be a part of your family and you can be a part of my family? It is just simply this, the Samaritans. The folks that are, are really, really despised in the Jewish world. The folks that like, look, if you walked into, into Samaria, which is this region that Jesus is in, you're declared unclean. You have to go cleanse yourself in the temple. The Samaritan woman who shows up just by her existence, she's unclean by Jewish standards. And you know what Jesus and John are saying? Actually, you are okay. I'm here to kind of invite you to be part of my family and I will be part of your family. So the first thing I would say to you is like being a messenger for all of this movement of God, being a messenger for the 1010 life, it just simply means Always be ready. Always be ready. And I think when we kind of hear that, we're like, oh, yes, yes, Eric, that's good. That's the churchy uh, Sunday school Jesus kind of answer. But, but let's take this to the next level. I mean, don't we all sort of have eyeballs and filters that we go, this one is ready for Jesus. This one, not so much. 
Don't we have ways of evaluating people that kind of say, well, this person seems like they're really curious, but these people over here, oh, I don't know about that. Jesus, by this very story, just says, look, you have no idea. And you cannot evaluate people with your human eyes. You know, we need Jesus filters. We need Jesus eyeglasses that basically say, look, you just never know. Somebody could have sleeve tattoos. Somebody could have a three-piece suit on. It does not matter. Anybody at any time can be open to hear the message. We have to always be ready. Always. So what I'm going to do now is actually switch to the end of, of the story for a moment. Because I want to unpack a little bit more of of. of how her dynamic with Jesus plays out. So down in verse 25, uh, they've been talking now, and the woman says to Jesus, uh, look, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus says, look, I am the Messiah. I am he, right? Well, before we rush by that, um, we have to understand what she has said and what Jesus has said. Because as a Samaritan, when she says Messiah, she has a very specific image in mind that is not the Jewish image. The Samaritans, one of the things that distinguished them from the Jews is that they only read the first five books of the Bible. It's called the Pentateuch. So if you have a Bible, you, know, you have hundreds and hundreds of pages of text uh, all the way up, you have prophets and poetry and, and songs and prayers. But the Samaritans only had the first five books. It's the only thing they, they paid attention to. In our Bible, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And her image of the Messiah is solely formed out of those five books. So to really be blunt or, or to, put, uh, to be concise, her Messiah looked a lot like Moses. Because Moses is kind of looms large in the first five books of the Bible. And they called this Messiah, they called him the Taheb. Let me hear you guys say Taheb. Congratulations, you know Aramaic now. So this guy, the, the, the Taheb, he was anticipated just like the Jewish Messiah. But the Jews' Messiah had so many more levels to him. And so when she says, look, you're the Messiah. Are you the Messiah? I know he's coming. It's this. And Jesus says, look, I am he. I'm, I'm, I'm the Messiah. But he doesn't correct her conception. He doesn't pause and say, okay, but, but let me parse this thing out for you. He just says, I'm he. And then look at what happens next. This is one that gets so exciting and interesting to me. Um, so the disciples, his, his disciples come back and they're shocked to find him talking to a woman, right? Because what he's not supposed to be. He's not supposed to be talking to a woman, much less a Samaritan woman. It just doesn't happen. But he is. None of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Raise your hand if you'd have the nerve to ask Jesus that question. That's what I thought. Why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and she ran back to the village telling everyone, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah, the Taheb, 
And so the people came streaming from the village to see him. They came streaming from the village to see him. So what's interesting to me is that when we're learning to be a messenger, we don't have to just learn from the way Jesus is a messenger. Like this woman is now teaching us how to be a messenger. And what she says about it is actually something really, really interesting. And you can see the way it plays itself out in the text. Um, If you skip down a little bit more in the text, the disciples have this interaction with Jesus. And then look at the way it ends up. It says, many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. And when they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. Now, what has not happened? Jesus has not corrected her. He's not sat her down and say, okay, there's a lot that you don't know about me. You're just a Samaritan. You have this... Uh, vital but incomplete knowledge of who I am. Let's figure this thing out. Sit down, take a couple classes, read a couple of uh, uh, you know, great magazines and listen to some podcasts and then go to your village and tell them about me. No, what happens? She goes. She goes. She goes with what she has experienced, right? And so here's the deal. This is what's so awesome about this. In, in when you're being a messenger, you can go before you know. You can go before you know. Like that's a powerful phrase for a preacher because it rhymes. That's a slogan. That's tweet worthy. You can go before you know. See, a lot of us sit there and think, well, I I can't be a messenger because I don't know all the things about Jesus. I don't know the Bible like I should. That might be true. But what this woman says is that, look, you have been given something. She goes back and says, look, you got to come see this guy. He's told me everything I ever did, and that's what works. Now, here's a way I would say it just slightly more deeply. Everybody has a part to play. Everybody has a part to play. You may be uh, in a church for the first time. You have a part to play as being a messenger. You could be here for 20 years. You could be a 20-year believer, legacy, uh, all this stuff. You have a part to play, but nobody has to play the whole thing. And the way it spoke to me this week is like, look, you share what you've been given, not what you haven't. And you know what all of us have been given? A story and an experience. It doesn't have to be theologically perfect. It doesn't have to be the whole thing, but you can walk out of this and find somebody in your world that is hurting and you can go, man, I don't have this thing all figured out, but let me tell you what I've experienced. That there's a God who who promises a rich and satisfying life. I'm still figuring it out, but maybe you need that too. You share what you've been given and we've all been given a story. Some of our stories uh, involve deep wounds that we're healing from. We don't even, we're not even all done healing. Some of us are still in that pain. We're still feeling that. That is an experience that can be used. God says, play your part. Share what you've been given, not what you haven't. And then uh, when she does that, the people come out. She just says, there's a guy who told me stuff. And they come out and then look what happens then. Um, Starting in verse uh, 40, again. Um, Oh, I got lost. Oh, my gosh. Okay. 
They beg him to stay in their village. So he stays for two days. Long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. And then they said to the woman, look, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard for ourselves. She took them the way that she could take them, as far as she could take them. And you know what happened? Jesus did the rest. Jesus did the rest. They told, she told them, look, he's done these things. Then she stepped back and Jesus did the rest. You can trust the process. And then it finishes this. They said, uh, we believe not just because of what you said, because we've heard him for ourselves. And now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world, which is different than the Taheb. So she said, look, this is what I know. There is a guy and he said he's the Messiah. He says he's the Taheb. And uh, he told me things about myself. And then uh, she just gets him to come into contact with Jesus. And Jesus does the rest. You can go before you know all the answers. And all maybe you've been given is a, is a story and experience of how somebody in this church or somebody else has reached out to you and loved you. And you're like, man, I'll have all the answers. But there is a better life out there. And you can figure this out. And you can trust that Jesus will take them the rest of the way. So uh, kind of in the last few minutes, I want to go back to the middle of the story. Because the middle of the story is kind of where there's so much meat and so much beauty there. And so, uh, so they're sitting by this well. And um, it never says whether any of them get water. It doesn't, the text doesn't say. It says she left her water jug. And it doesn't really ever say, but I'd like to think that maybe at one point, like Jesus like goes and gets, you know, some water out of the well. And he probably doesn't have a Cubs Tervis tumbler, but but I'd like to think that Jesus is standing there as he's talking to the woman with this water. And he starts to talk to her and he says, Look in verse 13, we'll just go through well, the text. And Jesus says, anyone who drinks this water is going to be thirsty again. But those who drink the water I will give them will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. And then she says, please, sir, give me that water. Then I'll never be thirsty again. I won't have to come here to get water. Well, what Jesus does there is actually something really, really uh, deeply spiritual. It's not this is cool metaphor that Jesus seizes on. In his tradition, um, there's something called wisdom, more with a capital W than a, than a lowercase w. Wisdom is a big thing to Jesus. Wisdom in his spiritual context means the thing that leads you to God. And actually in the book of Proverbs, uh, wisdom is actually equated with God. That wisdom does God's work. A lot of people think that wisdom is sort of the Old Testament description of the Holy Spirit. And so let me show you two ways that wisdom is talked about in Proverbs. In Proverbs 13, the instruction of the wise is like a life-giving fountain. And those who accept it avoid the snares of death. Jesus says, you don't want this water. You want a deeper kind of water because what does that water do? It's like a stream of living water 
that bubbles up inside you. Jesus says, look for wisdom. He said, I have wisdom to give you, this thing that will lead you to God, this thing that will lead you to life. In uh, another chapter in Proverbs, just a few later, wise words or wisdom are like deep waters. Wisdom flows from the wise like what? A bubbling brook. Jesus, I'd like to think he's just standing there with this water. He's like, you don't want this. You want something deeper. And he's talking about wisdom that there's this thing that will bubble up inside you, that will guide you to God, that is meant to, to lead you to a life that you can't even imagine yet. But then she responds, give me some water. And then Jesus does this, whoa, random left turn of a conversation. Hey, go and get your husband. She says, I don't have one. And Jesus says, what? You're right. Now, in this culture, Jesus is on to her already. Because when you go out to get water from a well in a rural, agrarian, ancient society, you don't go in the middle of the day. You go in the morning. It's like one of those first thing chores. Because you don't have running water in your home. You want to do anything that involves water? You better go out to the well and get it. So all of the women of the village would go in the morning to get the water. But when is she there? She's there in the middle of the day. She's there in the middle of the day because nobody wants to be around her. Because in her context, you were allowed three marriages. That allows for death and everything. She's got five. And she's living with somebody who's not her husband right now. Look, she is kind of looked down upon in her village. We don't, you shouldn't be there with the good people. You can't come in the middle, you can't come at the beginning of the day. You can go in the middle of the day when nobody else is there. So she's there because she's been rejected by everybody already. And Jesus says, ah, let me tell you about some water that's different than what you're looking for. And she says, Bob, I, he says, go get your husband. I don't have a husband. You're right. And there's something... I'd be honest, like, there's something about this um, exchange that I'm a really honest and vulnerable. I don't like when Jesus does this. Because he calls her out. He says, you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with right now is not your husband either. And there's a pain in that, that as a, as a human being, I go, oh, Jesus, like, why'd you do that? Like, you know? But here's the deal. At the beginning of our talk today, right, I said, Jesus has this metaphor. He's like, look, the sick folk need a doctor. Sometimes the doctor has to find the wound. Amen? Sometimes people come into a doctor's office and the doctor's like, I don't, I don't know where the wound is. I don't know where the sickness is. We got to do some searching and some looking before you can get well. And so Jesus goes after her wound. The wound of rejection, the wound of, you know, who knows how, how she lost her husband, who knows what her story is, but he goes straight for it. We gotta talk about this. You've had five husbands. And then watch what she does. This is so brilliant. She says, um, you must be a prophet. Uh, so tell me, why is it that you Jews uh, insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim... You know what she does? 
She's like, let's not talk about me. Can we, talk, can we debate theology? Can we talk about like something controversial because this is controversial between the Jews and the Samaritans? Can we just talk about this? We don't have to talk about that. And Jesus is having none of it. Like he responds to her about saying, look, yeah, okay, you know, you Samaritans worship this way. We Jews worship this way. We're right. You're wrong. But that's not the point. Jesus does not fall for debate. He's not there for it. He's there to heal the sick. So, like, if you're a messenger, how many times has this happened to you? Like, or how many times have you seen this done where people want to tell people about God or Jesus, but it's all done in terms of an argument and a debate? Let me argue you into heaven. Let me fight you into the kingdom of God. And at least in this instance, Jesus just doesn't fall for it. She wants to debate. And Jesus is like, not this time. Not this time. He doesn't fall for it. He keeps gently pushing on her. And then she goes away and she goes back to her family. She says, um, this is key. She goes back to this, this group of people that have rejected her. And what does she tell them? Let me tell you about a man who just told me everything I ever did. So where she might have been ashamed and where she was rejected and at the well in the middle of the day, now she goes back to that community and she says, you know that wound I have? You know that wound I have? Um, after I met Jesus, um, I'm just gonna, I'm, I'm open about it. it. Yeah, it happened. But it's actually the way that I'm finding God. She no longer conceals what she has done. She says, let me tell you about the guy who just, he told me about all that stuff. And so the last thing I would throw out to you is just say it this way. Look, uh, not, unlike Alec Baldwin, uh, we are not there to sell Jesus. We should focus on serving folks, not selling them. Because Jesus just says, look, I don't have to sell you anything. Tell me where you're hurting and if you're not going to tell me, I'm actually going to kind of just like, I'm going to ask you questions and engage you until, you until we get that on the table. Because the whole goal is rich and abundant life and the whole goal is healing. And sometimes the doctor just has to, they have to find where the wound is. But we're not there to sell people a vacation package that includes the cross and the resurrection. We're there to guide people into abundant life and connect them with Jesus. I heard a podcast a, a few weeks ago. Um, it was an interview with a woman named Ruby Sales. Let me show you a picture of her. Um, civil rights activist. She marched, in, uh, I believe, in Selma. Um, she's being interviewed on a podcast called On Being. And, uh, and she just kind of told this brief story that spoke to me at the time and it speaks to me now and we're talking about how do we be messengers for the rich and abundant life that God offers folks. And uh, I thought I could just tell the story, but I think it's more powerful to hear her words. So it's, it's a relatively short clip. Just listen to the way she puts uh, offering what we have to offer the world. Check this out. But a defining moment for me happened 
when I was getting my locks washed and my locker's daughter came in one morning and she had been hustling all night and she had sores on her body and she was just in a state, drugs. So something said to me, ask her, where does it hurt? And I said, Shelly, where does it hurt? And just that simple question unleashed territory in her that she had never shared with her mother. And she talked about having been incested. She talked about all of the things that had happened to her as a child. And she literally shared the source of her pain. So let me ask you, where does it hurt? Where does it hurt today? You know, part of this messenger thing is that what, what this woman experiences that is even as she's being healed, she's going to be a messenger. So I'm going to tell you right now, like, I'm not all the way there. I follow God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, but I'm no saint. So I'm just doing what that woman did, and I'm going to tell you, I, I, I don't have it all figured out, but I'm, I'm here to be a messenger. So, and I'm just going to ask you, like, this morning, where does it hurt? Where's that part of your life that you're wounded in? That's the part that, that God and Jesus want to come to and minister to right now, this morning. It may not all be healed instantaneously, but it can begin today. For some of us uh, also in this room, when I say, where does it hurt? you know the name of the person that you need to ask that question to. Not to engage in a debate, but to say, just tell me where it hurts. Because there's a doctor. <laughs> there's a doctor out there in a way of life that wants to speak to that pain and that hurt. Where does it hurt? Where does it hurt? We're going to close in a song. As we do that, if a name has come to mind, and whether it's your name or somebody else's name, man, write that name down. Man, there's something inside me that says this person is in pain. And I need to go be a messenger. That there is a God out there that loves them and accepts them and wants more for them. That can start right here, right now. Let's pray.